Good morning, my name is Tim. I get to be one of the pastors here on staff at Central Heights Church, and my privilege to begin a new series this morning called The Best Life. We're gonna look at the first section of the letter um, of Ephesians, written by uh, someone we're gonna learn a little bit about this morning. Um, You know, it's January 6th, and boy, Christmas goes by fast, right? But I'm one of those guys that tries to fight it, and so if you come into my house, the Christmas tree is still up. And so if you need a little bit more dose of that spirit, come on over. I'll put on some apple cider. No, I can't, I can't really do that. But um, <clears throat> as I'm thinking about that, I know that it's not that long ago that you probably opened a gift. And probably several gifts. And within those gifts, it's not uncommon at all to, to receive a gift from somebody or some people. They have bought you the particular gift they did because they've experienced that. And it was good, and now they want you to experience that. And so uh, something like, oh, man, we went to this great play, and so here you are. You've been given two tickets to go see that same play. It's still running to the end of January. Now you have the opportunity to experience the good that they did. Or, wow, um, I really love this soap, and so we wanted you to experience that soap. And so for a Christmas uh, housewarming present, you get this bar of soap. Or, oh, these scarves, these scarves, these beautiful silk scarves, they just feel so nicely when they rest against your neck. So you end up getting a scarf as a gift because they want you to experience that same feeling. Or then this is my favorite. Oh, this bakery makes the best croissants. And so there you are. You get a gift card so that you can share in that same mouth-watering experience. When someone that cares for you experiences something great, they want you also to experience the same thing. This morning, as we begin to look at this letter from the Apostle Paul, uh, know that he has experienced, experienced something so amazing, it literally turned his life upside down, changed his worldview and his actions. It was forever life-altering. And because of that, his life became a mission so that what he experienced, the good that he experienced, now the whole purpose of his life was to help other people experience the same thing. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So a little bit of the skinny on this man. uh, This man named Paul, he was uh, before that referred to as Saul. He was a religious man, very devout in a Jewish faith. And he was very meticulous about keeping the rules of his Jewish faith. And also very, um, very zealous not only to keep the rules for himself, but to keep his faith from being polluted or infiltrated by anything else. And so in the first century, when he lives, there is an upright, upstart movement of people that are beginning to follow what they claim to be as a risen Savior. His name was Jesus, whom they claim was the Anointed One, the Messiah. Paul saw Jesus as a crucified criminal, not as a savior. So he would have none of this and given authority and power, he is trying to systematically persecute those who are of this movement referred to as people of the way. We pick up part of the story in Acts chapter 9 where it says this about Paul, previously known as Saul. 
He was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So he's in Jerusalem. He's going to go to Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what people who followed Jesus Christ were called, people of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is his passion. This is his mission. And he thinks he's doing this in, in, a, in service to God. He's going to apprehend them, bring them back, and they'll be persecuted. Then he meets Jesus. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So can you imagine? He's living his life in this direction with passion, with mission. And it's against the followers of Jesus Christ. And on his way, he meets Jesus. And in those moments, he discovers that all that he has been about is completely wrong. And he does not know how this is going to play out. The voice simply tells him that go to the city and you will be told what you are to do. We read on, and it says, The men who were traveling with him, in verse 7, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he's had this encounter with God, and in that encounter, he's been blinded. Now, if you'll um, close your eyes for a moment, if you would, and what you see with your eyes closed is what Paul sees with his eyes opened. He's completely sightless. He cannot see. You can open your eyes now. Some of you already have because one or two seconds was too painful or you don't like to be told what to do from the front. Let's be honest, right? There's some of you that are that way. But Paul is blind for an hour. It turns into a day. It turns into two days. He does not know in that moment how this is going to turn out. He had been one who was persecuting followers of Jesus. Maybe this will be his judgment, and rightfully so. Maybe the fate of the rest of his life is that he will be physically blind. Now, I don't know if any of you have had an experience where your future is jeopardized in a different way, whether a, a traumatic experience. When, when um, just a few years ago, uh, I was in a restaurant, and uh, my whole world started spinning, and um, my, my body got red hot, and I started vomiting, and uh, I thought I was having a stroke. And I can tell you in those moments that all kinds of things flashed through my mind, but one of the things was, is my life changed forever from this point going forward? Now, as it turned out, it was just an episode of vertigo, which I've never experienced since. But I can tell you that, that what Paul must have been feeling in those moments was nothing less than traumatic. His whole world is being turned upside down, and it's, it's affected not only what he thinks, but it's affected his physical being. Is he going to be blind for the rest of his life? 
In the background, we know from the story, God speaks to a man named Ananias, and he says to Ananias, I want you to go see this man, Saul, and I want you to pray for him that he might receive his sight again. And Ananias is a good man, but he, he puts up a little resistance, like, Lord, do you not know what this guy is like, this, this evil person who's been persecuting followers of Jesus Christ? Like, God says, I want you to go. He is a chosen vessel for me to be a witness to the Gentiles and to the Jewish world. So Ananias goes and Ananias prays for him and and the scriptures tell us it was like scales fell from the eyes of Paul. He could see again. He rises up and he gets baptized. That's that's what people do when they change their allegiance. When, When we say, I'm following Jesus, the first step is to be immersed in water, to be baptized. This was what Paul does because it, it signifies a whole new life change that we've died to our old selves and we're, we're risen out of the waters. So it's like we arise to a new life in Jesus Christ. He's baptized and he eats. Do you think he'll ever forget that encounter, that experience with God? We read in Romans chapter 5, I think it sheds a whole new light on some of the things that Paul has written. They're not just theological words when Paul is writing. He's writing from personal experience. In Romans 5 verse 10, it talks about how if we are reconciled to God when we were his enemies, how much more will we be made right, reconciled to God by his life? Paul had been an enemy of God. He'd been persecuting the followers of Jesus Christ. But he'd been reconciled. I don't think he ever got over this. We read even in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, later in this letter here where, where Paul talks about the fact that he's been called by God. Verse 7 of chapter 3 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Why would he say that? Well, we read in Corinthians, he considers himself the least of all the apostles because he once persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He never forgets this. And yet what else he can't forget is this amazing grace that's flowed into his life that God didn't just apprehend him and judge him and destroy him, though he was deserving of that, but God apprehended him to bring him onto God's side and to make him an ambassador for the God he once persecuted, the followers he once persecuted. To me, though I'm very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's complete orientation, his worldview, the core of who he is, is completely changed. He had once had a dream, you know, to be uh, the, the best Pharisee, the religious zealot and the Jewish faith that he could be. But that's all changed. Though that may have brought him status and recognition, it's all changed because he has met Jesus. And the one thing, the focus of his life now, is to have other people experience this good that he has experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. Whether you were living in the first century or whether you're living today, all of us have something in common among many things. One of those is that we, in our heads, we have an idea of what makes up the best life. 
So you may have an idea in your head. You may profess one thing, but really when you, when you think about where your thoughts go, it may be different than what you profess. And it may be something very simple. I, the best life for me that you envision right now, I just want to be married. Or you want to have your family together, living in harmony. And that would be the best life for you because maybe it's not in harmony now. It can be something very simple. Or it can be something very grand. Like I want to be the, the absolute best in the world at what I do. Or at least really, really good so that everybody recognizes it. Or maybe your, your, your vision of the best life is to have lots of money so that you can have lots of choices and travel and enjoy that. That is the best life in your mind. In his book uh, called Thinking, Andy Steiger, who's a, a local pastor and apologist, um, as he talks about this, he, he brings up the example of Tom Brady. Now, some of you will know who he is. Others won't. He is arguably the best ever at the most important position in the most important game in the United States. He is an NFL quarterback and undoubtedly the best there has ever been. In the middle of his career in an interview not that long ago, um, Brady, who now has five championships, said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. He was asked by his host, Steve Croft, what's the answer? To which the best that Brady could reply is, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Paul has an answer. Oh, he had had a dream. He thought he knew the answer, but now he really knows the answer. The answer is found in a living relationship with God. And as he writes to the church in Ephesus, and through doing that, he's writing to all of us who are followers or believers or potential believers in Christ Jesus that this opportunity is there for you. It's like, in summary, the best thing that he could want for us is what he states in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not throwaway words for the Apostle Paul. Now, in first century, there was a convention as to how to begin a letter, and this fits right in with that convention. But these are not throwaway words for the Apostle Paul. These are words uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just doesn't waste words. These are words that have meaning. And as Paul greets the church with these words, there's a bit of a... a, a there's a bit of a um, wisdom, there's a revolutionary twist to what he's saying. A common greeting in Greek at the time would have been the word karain or Cairo. It meant to rejoice and as often it's translated as greetings. But Paul uses a different word. He uses the word charis, which is directly translated as grace. This is a beautiful word for him. This is his life experience for him. Grace, the unmerited favor. I, I love that word grace. I think sometimes we've used it so much that we've lost its vitality. You two used to sing a great song about grace, personifying it as a, as a woman. 
She takes the blame. She covers the shame. Talks about how grace is the thought that can change the world. And for Paul, this was certainly true. Grace was the unmerited favor, the blessing, the kindness of God that he had not only uh, begun to understand in these broad theological terms, but in his own personal experience. I need that. And I'm thinking you need that too. I need to know what grace means in its beautiful, broad-painted picture that the Scripture gives to us. And later, Paul, as, he, as we go through this in Ephesians, he's going he's to uh, articulate different aspects of God's grace. Grace is when you're an enemy of God and God enlists you as an ambassador for him when you used to be so against it. Grace is standing in a relationship with God as if you are holy and blameless instead of deserving of judgment. Grace is, as we even sang this morning, is being adopted into God's family so it's like his blood is running through your veins. That's grace. Grace is having all your debts removed from you. Grace is having your sins, all your wrongs, all your misdeeds forgiven. Grace is being given the understanding of, of God's will and purposes that are going to flow through into eternity when all things are united in Christ. The glimpse that we've been given into that is grace. It's a gift of God. And grace is to be marked by God's Holy Spirit, sealed and helped to live the life that he wants us to live. All these things were so grand for Paul, but let's never forget they were personal to him. And as he writes this letter, grace and peace to you, he wants it to be personal. And I believe we need it. I need it. it wasn't that many days ago I was waking up in the morning and um, after Christmas, getting back into my responsibilities here and I'm the kind of person that really, really enjoys my breaks. I enjoy what I do, but I enjoy my breaks. And what can be better at Christmas time than celebrating Jesus and doing it with your family? I mean, come on. It's so amazing to me, and I so enjoy it. And then I'm back in, after that, and I'm into my responsibilities here, and I wake up one morning, and I feel the weight of that. And it's like I can hardly get out of bed when I think about, oh, this needs to be done, that needs to be done. We've got to consider this, we've got to consider that. And I just felt this, wait. And then this thought came to me, um, it's not all up to you. There's grace. It's about what God can do, not you. See, for me, for you, in those places where we think we're not enough, where we think we can't do it, we don't have the capacity, but God's called us into something, when we think, oh, I don't know if I want to do this because I might fail in those places, let us consider what the Apostle Paul is reminding us right from the start here. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace to you. Grace to you, he says. And peace. The word peace, if you were a Jewish person, that would be the way you would greet one another. So you're not Greek, you're Jewish. Peace. Shalom. 
And again, that word means so much to them and to us. Shalom, peace with one another, peace between nations, but most importantly, peace with God. Let that be to you. And this is where grace takes us. Grace takes us to that place where we have peace with God. John Stott, the theologian, as he's talking about this introduction to Paul's letters, and Paul did this often, he says, although grace and peace are common monosyllables, they are pregnant with theological substance. In fact, they summarize Paul's gospel of salvation. The nature of salvation is peace or reconciliation. Peace with God, peace with men, peace within. The source of salvation is grace. God's free favor, irrespective of any human merit or works, his loving kindness to the undeserving. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace. And where's the source of that? Where are you going to get that? Will it be what you're chasing after? Will it give you that? Grace? Peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace within yourself, that rest that we talked about last week, if you were here. Paul says, let me remind you of the source, the, the good that I've discovered, a relationship with God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father. This was going to be a growing understanding in Paul's life. In the Old Testament, seeing God as Father was not the normal way you looked at the people of God's relationship with God. But in the New Testament, it's one of the most common ways that, that God is referred to as a father. And we, as, we, as you page through the pages of the, of the followers of the way, uh, th this father is a good father. He gives good gifts. He's a father who is, he's noted by his love. And, and later in Ephesians, Paul will talk about that. He says, let yourself be grounded and rooted in, in the Father and his love for you. And the, get to know this surpassing knowledge of his love, the bright, the, the depth, the height, the breadth, the length of it. God is a Father who loves you. You know, I read recently a summary of a blog which talked about how the unchurched see Christianity. And they had like 20 points, but three of them that stuck out to me. One was that their questions around faith are legitimate. So people have legitimate questions about faith and faith in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you have those kind of questions, that's good. We don't want people to ignore their questions. That's why we run Alpha, um, so that people can come in a non-threatening environment and explore the claims of Jesus Christ and, and see if this is really true. So people have legitimate questions, but in the back of their minds, secondly, they think that Christianity is all about rules and not relationship. And thirdly, what stuck out to me is that this uh, author wrote was that people have no idea how much God loves them. People have no idea how much God loves them. Paul has experienced the love of God and his grace. He wants us to experience that same thing. I know as a dad and now as a grandfather, how much love I have for my kids and my grandkids. And then when I think and I believe that God's love for us, for me, for you individually, is infinitely greater than that. 
It just blows my mind. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was what was so hard for him to wrap his mind around previously. Why would people follow Jesus and proclaim him as the Son of God, equal with the Father, as God? How could that be possible? It had to be wrong. But now Paul himself is proclaiming it. Grace and peace will not be only found in God the Father, but in his Son, Jesus Christ. We sang this morning, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And as we begin to work our way through Ephesians, we'll find that God the Father has worked out all his promises, and he works out all his grace in partnership with the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. So it's not just enough to be... um, favorable towards the concept of God. And if you're here or if you have friends and and people speak in, in nice terms about God, that is not enough. The grace and peace that Paul has experienced and gave his life for is found in Jesus Christ. That's why he suffered. That's what he died for, to proclaim that truth, that it's in Jesus that we experience all the good that Paul himself experienced. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the source is. Of All the things that we want, the best life that we could envision, Paul says that's where it is. In God the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, but he's also telling us something else in these two short verses of his greeting. It's also found in community with other followers of Jesus Christ as well. We skip back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In his greeting, Paul's been like just brilliant to remind the people that are hearing this that God's church are a mixed bag. So he's given a Hebrew greeting, he's given a Greek greeting. What's the church made up of? Jew and Gentile. So Paul has brilliantly greeted them in in a way that includes both of them and reminds them of the fact that they are a mixed community. But what kind of mixed community are they? Saints. It's not something you become after you've done enough good things. No, no. By virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ, they've become saints, which means called out ones, separate. They've become holy, sacred unto God. Now, if you're, if you're here this morning and, and you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of the way, you need to be reminded that's what you are. You are sacred in God's eyes. He loves you and you are sacred to him. That's how you need to think about yourself and then also how we need to think about the people that are around us who are followers of Jesus. Look at them. They are sacred in God's eyes. And it's not just this church, this community of faith, but all throughout our city, all throughout our province, all throughout our country, all throughout the world, not just in this age, but in ages that precede us and that will come. All those who are followers of Jesus Christ, every one of them is called a saint, a holy one. To God. Paul says 
to the saints who are in Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's letter, it's really amazing how he's written it. The first half of Paul's letter is all about who God is, what he's done for us, who we are. The second half of Paul's letter is all about how do we then respond to that? So are there, is it important how we live? Yes. But it's always in response, first of all, to who God has made us to be and what he's done for us. And so, so Paul, or Paul, as he writes this, orders it in the same way. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul assumes they're going to live differently. See, as God has been faithful to us, so we are faithful. As God has been gracious to us, so we live in that grace and we're gracious to others. I was thinking about this in my own life, how behavior changes when we, when we experience and know the grace of God, how we act in the light of that. I was in a golf tournament a while back, and it was called a Texas Scramble. And in a Texas Scramble, everybody, um, you have four players, so golf is played in a foursome. You have four players, you're all on the same team, and you all get to hit the ball, and then you choose the best ball. Well, I was the worst player in this foursome, so this works out really good for me. I mean, I can, I can hit the odd good ball, but I hit a lot of, um, what shall we say, rebellious? Rebellious balls, they don't go where I want it to go or tell it to go. They, they have their own mind and their own way. But it doesn't really matter if the guys you're playing with are really, really good. And these guys were really, really good. And yes, we won the tournament. We won it. So when you think of me, have that in the back of your mind. Tournament, golf tournament winner. Tim, golf tournament winner. We won the tournament. And this was a really high-end tournament. So uh, part of our winnings for that tournament was this, this huge box. It was a sound system. Who thinks you're going to go to a golf tournament and win a sound system? You mean you think you're going to win a sleeve of golf balls or something? Was, we won a sound system. Yahoo! I didn't have a lot to do with it. It was my team. But I'll share in that, in that grace. Well, as, it wasn't over. They also had this really big um, a draw. If you would put your business card in, in this container, uh, they had a draw. And again, these prizes were amazing. And uh, somebody had told me in the back of my mind, if you crumple your business card up a little bit, it's more likely to be picked. Guess what happens? I crumpled up my card, I put it in there, and later after the, the game is finished and we're having our beautiful, amazing banquet and we've won this sound system, guess what else? Yeah, I win the big business card prize. So I got this other haul of stuff to take with me. But we're not done. No, every table gets to go to the prize table and pick out a gift that you want. But I'm feeling, like I'm almost feeling embarrassed. Like I'm going to have to make two trips to my vehicle with all the stuff that I got. And I'm embarrassed. So I go to the table. And again, because I feel so overloaded with riches, I don't pick a gift for myself. I pick one for somebody else. My wife. And I bring her home this beautiful gift. I mean, you want to talk about a win-win-win day? When you can go play golf and you come home and your wife is ecstatic about the fact that you went and played the day of golf. I mean, it was just in this incredible day. But I tell you that to see when we realize that we're overloaded with riches, that we're overflowing with abundance, we begin to live a different way. It's not like we're grinding our teeth and gutting out in obedience because, oh well, we know we're supposed to. 
Paul wants to remind us because he's experienced something so great. He wants us to experience that greatness. And it will be found in God the Father, in God the Son, Jesus Christ. Brought together, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As we grow and as we serve God together in community. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ.